We are in the letter of Second John. Second uh, John, if you want to grab a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you, although always encouraged to bring your own. If you need a Bible, feel free to take it. We want you to have God's Word in your own hands. And so we're in the letter of Second John, and those Bibles in front of you, that's on page 1,025, way at the back of the New Testament. Second John. We're in the second of four in a series of sermons that I've titled The Hobbit Letters. Uh, Like hobbits, these letters are small, they're diminutive, but they pack a punch. There is a world of truth here in 13 verses. In fact, if our world and we as Christians would take the central truth in 2 John, it would really change things. And so uh, 2 John today... Third uh, John in a week, and then we'll finish it up in two Sundays from Jude, God willing. Christ tells us uh, that in the ordinance of marriage, two become one. And what uh, we hear in, in the marriage uh, ceremony, that what God has joined, let no man separate. It's that idea that's at the heart of this letter, and the two that are Here already in union are truth and love, truth and love. Now, truth and love can never be divorced. If you lose one, you don't have the other. They can't stand on their own. Uh, We want to divorce them. We want to, but we can't. And so we're going to see that today. Let me read this letter, and then I'll pray, and then I'll explain a few things about the letter itself. Uh, The elder... To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So there it is right away. Whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. In truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as we have heard from the beginning, so that we should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. 
Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes so that we may keep it all of our days. Please, God, do not withhold from us understanding, but open our eyes so we may observe your word with our whole hearts. Please, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Give us life in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we have here the second letter of John, uh, and it's closely related to the first. In fact, if you were to read 1 John and then 2 John in one sitting, you would see that 2 John is kind of a miniature of the exact same truths in 1 John. And that's because in 1 John, he writes to a church that has false teachers or heretics who are teaching something that isn't true about who Jesus is. They're teaching that Jesus isn't actually human. He didn't come in the flesh. That's why we sang the song before the sermon. Now those false teachers have been kicked out of that church, but they're trying to infiltrate another church. That's why John writes Second John. He's writing likely to the church where those false teachers have landed. And in John's day, the, there were teachers who were sort of itinerant. They would go from church to church and rely on the hospitality of the church for teaching. And John is here teaching, so long as they teach biblical truth, receive them. But if they don't, especially concerning who Jesus is, don't receive them, don't show them hospitality, don't even greet them. All right, so John is writing 2 John to create, or to, to deal with the problem that writing the letter of 1 John unintentionally created. And, and so the, the truths in 2 John are almost identical to those in 1 John. One of the curious questions related to this letter is who this elect lady is in verse 1. Uh, there are two schools, if you will, on this. One is that it's an actual individual woman. The other is that it's a metaphor for the church. I'm here uh, prone to take the second. The, I don't think this is actually an individual I think uh, John is doing what Scripture sometimes done, is referring to the church as a wife or a mother. Uh, maybe the most familiar place is Ephesians 5, where a wife is a metaphor for the church. Again, in Revelation 21, the church is referred to as Christ's bride. Because of the general character of the letter, because of the use of the plural pronoun throughout it, and uh, because those who were most closely associated with John in the ancient church, those who were writing about this letter and then on through the ages, mostly think that John here is using elect lady as a metaphor for the entire church. I think that makes the most sense of it. Um, again, I, I don't want to be dogmatic or stake my salvation or your salvation on it, but uh, that seems to be the, the consensus here. All right, so... I want to just hit on that for a moment. Um, throughout Scripture, the church is referred to in the feminine, uh, that we are Christ's bride, that the church is a mother. And isn't uh, the word mom the best word? Isn't it? Think about your mom. Now, that might not be true for all of you. Maybe some of you lost your mom early on, or maybe your mom wasn't a good one. Um, but moms are precious. If you listen even to like the most hardcore rapper when he starts have, has a rap song about his mom, it's a totally different tenor. Uh, moms are beautiful. Maya Angelou 
sings of a mother as a cradle created to hold me. That's how she conceives of mom. Mom in her person is a cradle created to hold me. It is true I was created in you. It is also true that you were created for me. I owned your voice. It shaped and tuned to soothe me. Your arms were molded into a cradle to hold me, to rock me. The scent of your body was the air perfumed, perfumed for me to breathe. Mother, during those early dearest days, I did not dream that you had a large life which would include me, for I had a life which was only you. That's mom, isn't it? That's mom. It's little wonder then that the scripture portrays church as a mother. That's how we're to conceive of the church. John writes here that the church is an elect lady with children. She's a mother. John writes throughout this letter with great affection for the church. Just listen to this. He loves her in truth. He prays in verse 3 for grace, mercy, and peace to be hers. He rejoices greatly in verse 4 that the mother's children are walking in the truth. Some of them are. He writes this entire letter to protect her from those who would harm her. We are taught in Scripture to honor our father and mother. And so if the church is likened to a mother in that it births us, in a sense, and nurtures us, can I ask you, do you honor her? Do you have the affection for Christ's church that we ought? Does your heart evidence the kind of affection and care that John here has for her or for us? You see, in our day, many Christians think very little of the church. We live in a day where individualism is our highest value, and so loyalty has become our, one of the lowest we don't look upon the church as a mother. We don't look upon her as giving us life. And yet, if, you're, if you think about it, every one of you came to the Lord because of the church in connection with somebody from her. Right? Every one of us. And every one of us has been nurtured in the faith because of the church. And the church is a wonder. And so, I would encourage you right at the start to think about Christ's church with the affection, with the attention, with the care that you would give yourself to her. Tells us, too, the purpose of a church. What is the purpose of the church? What does John rejoice in in verse 4? That the children of church are walking according to the church, or truth. Some of them are. So the church, then, is a place, like a mother, teaching and training and disciplining and feeding and protecting our children so they could become mature adults. Walking in truth. That's what we're here for. You should come every Sunday to be nurtured. You should come every Sunday to hear the truth sung and prayed and preached in order to be nurtured up, matured up in the faith so that after a period of years you're walking in more accordance with the, the truth. And so uh, the church exists to love you in truth. And those two words then, you've heard, are repeated throughout this letter. This is a short letter, only 13 verses. And so it's, uh, 
you should pay particular attention when John uses those short verses and repeats things. If you only have so much space to write a letter and, and you repeat things, you're using up space, that short space. And so John, even as you heard me reading, is constantly repeating this refrain of truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. If you were cooking a meal and you left out an essential ingredient, especially like a, a main one, the impact on the entire dish is catastrophic. This is true for Christian truth. If you take one thing out, the whole falls. And the two main ingredients in this book are truth and love. You can't have one without the other. Again, so the purpose of the church is to nurture you towards living obediently before God. John calls this walking in truth. So John's main concern in this letter is actually practical Christian living. He wants to take your faith and urge you to live it. He doesn't want us to disconnect confession of Jesus from how we treat our wives. He doesn't want you to con- con- disconnect worshiping God in song from how you use your checkbook or what you watch on TV or how you do hospitality. He wants you to walk the faith. He wants you to live it. We are saved by grace, it is true, without any reference to our works. Think thief on the cross, right? Jesus promised that this day he would be in paradise. Why? Just because he confessed Christ and was forgiven of his sin. So when we're talking about walking the faith, our walk doesn't ultimately eternally save us. And yet because we are eternally saved, it should impact greatly how we live. And John is wanting here to you and I to take this faith we confess in Jesus and apply it to Monday. Apply it to Sunday afternoon. Apply it to your work. Apply it to every aspect of your life. This should change us. We shouldn't be the same. And John is here teaching what we need in order to walk this faith is truth and love, love and truth. Now notice in verse 4 that John is rejoicing to find that some of the children walk in truth, which means, of course, that some aren't. That some aren't. And so which might you be? That that some there is hard because you have to let the Word of God be a mirror to your life. Which, which are you? Are you of those walking according to the truth? And is your life in total? I'm not talking about that you don't fall into sin. We all sin. I'm just saying that the sum total of your yesterday or your last week or the last month is your life a record of walking in the truth. I can tell you that as a pastor, John is writing here as a pastor or as a father, if you will. There's no greater joy for a father than to see his children walking in the truth. And I know you love me and you want me to be happy. And so I urge you to walk in the truth. So the point is walking in the truth. Now, one of the curious things about John, especially if you read 1 John, he repeats himself. He's rather circular. He'll make a point, 
and then to make another point, and then return to the point he first made, and then return to the point he second made. And he just keeps doing that throughout the letter. He does that in this letter as well. John says that the point of walking in the truth is walking in the truth. Then he says that the truth is love. And then he says that love is to walk in truth. Right? So walk in the truth or commands, and the command is to love one another. And this is love that you walk in the commands or the truth. You see? It's, it's just a circle. This is the Christian life. This is how we actually grow. Now, just listen to this, okay? This is love, verse 6. Just tell me, does this sound strange to your modern ears? And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Does that sound weird to you? I mean, if, you're, if you're a Christian and been around, it doesn't sound weird. But to immediately after say love, use the word commands... That's really different than how we talk about love today. We don't associate loving somebody with obeying them. In fact, the church often labels that kind of talking, walking according to his commandments, as legalism. We hate legalism. Like, legalism is always written in big, capital letters, legalism. We hate it. We, but I, I, I think we don't really have any idea what it is often. We label talking about obedience to God as legalism. If that's emphasized, that's the definition of legalism in the church. John writes to us that we should walk according to God's commandments. My experience in the pastor has been that when you preach or teach that kind of thing, the next thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to accuse you of being a legalist. You emphasize obedience. Isn't that legalism? Brothers and sisters, the definition of legalism is not law. The definition of legalism is not urging obedience to God. That's not legalism. That's love. You see that? It is an L word, and it's a four-letter word. It's love. And this is love. What's your definition of love? If I were to give you a few minutes for you to write out your definition of love, what would it be? Would it be, this is love, that we obey God's commandments? Would you write that? And so, John is teaching us that love is obeying God. Some of us think that's so Old Testament, the New Testament's all about grace. Why don't we talk more about grace? Let's substitute the word love for grace. They're somewhat synonymous, right? And this is grace, that you walk in obedience to his commandments, does your definition of grace have any room for walking obedience to God's commandments? Doesn't in Titus 2 grace teach us to say no to all forms of godliness, ungodliness, not godliness, that'd be bad. Grace is teaching you to walk in obedience to God's commandments. But we want to separate grace from law. 
separate love from commandments, separate love from truth. We, we don't see them as friends. We see them as enemies. I think we're all wrong on this. And the wrong is our hearts, of course. The fall has twisted us. It's warped us. We want to separate what God has united. We, we really do not like to be told what to do. I don't. I like to tell others what to do. Uh, I don't like to be told what to do. I like to define grace for myself. I want God to be in debt to me. I want God to do what I say. And if you are saying, that's not me, lovingly, you're lying to yourself. (laughs) You're lying to yourself. You want to separate love and truth. You want love to be feeling, you want love to be emotion, you want love to be experience, you don't have any room in your definition of love for a commandment. But John defines love in a way that's really shocking to our ears, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commandments. Why is it love? To obey God. Why? Well, who is God? He's our creator. He knows us. He formed us. Christmas is coming. You're going to get your kids gifts, and those gifts are going to come with instructions. Don't be a fool and not read them. Why? Because the creator knows how to put it together, knows how to use it. God is our creator. He has put us together. His laws are his instructions on how to live well. If you want a good life, we should walk in obedience to commands. Even more, who is God? Did he not spend his son for us? Why would we not listen to his commands as love? See, we take commands as harsh, as restrictive, as keeping us from good things. But the God who created us and redeemed us by the blood of his son has given us laws for our good and for his glory. That's why it's love to walk in obedience to his commands. Let's put it another way. If you obey commands, what what effect will that have on the people in your life? If you as a husband or you as a wife obey the biblical commands for a wife to a husband or husband to his wife, what will happen in your marriage? You'll smile more. You'll get along well. You won't like all the same things. You won't think all the same things, but you'll treat each other really well. You'll love by obeying commands. So the Bible does not separate these things at all. And so we shouldn't. You know, let me just use a phrase. Have you ever heard the phrase, just, just give me a little more grace in the church? Or, or really bad, the, the umbrella of grace. Have you ever heard that in the church? We just need an umbrella of grace. What do we mean by that word grace there? In, that, in those instances. What do we mean? We mean don't tell the truth. Right? When we, um, when there's somebody in our life that needs to be told something, and we see it, we see the wrong, or we see the problem, even like 
food in the teeth or something, and we don't say it, what we often tell ourselves is we were just giving them grace. We were just being gracious. See, what we're doing is we're separating grace and truth. We're not actually being gracious there. We're protecting ourselves. We don't want to risk telling the truth because we don't want the person to dislike us or say something bad to us or risk anything. So we're protecting ourselves, but we're telling ourselves we're being gracious. We're separating truth and love. We're separating grace. But you can't have one without the other. Love is the motive for truth. We speak the truth in love. Love is the context. It's the relational context of telling the truth. We teach and urge obedience to God's commands. Why? Because we love. It's out of love that we urge obedience. Truth without love is formality. It's cold. It's lifeless. It's dead. It's harsh. Right? If you're just a, a like a, that whack-a-mole game and you just whack people with truth all the time, you don't really care for them, you couldn't be bothered to invite them over for a meal or to clean their gutters or pray for them, but you'll whack them with truth, right? you're useless in the church. You're mean. Knock it off. But that's not the main error in the church. The main error in the church is love without truth. We're squishy. We're jello-y. Love without truth leaves people vulnerable. And that's what John will not do in this letter. Truth draws hard lines that teaches us what love is like. Love gives us the reason, the motivation that we have to draw these hard, straight lines. We must stand firm in the truth. Why? Because we love. Because we love. Because we love. And this is what John shows us to do in the second half of the letter. There is a specific truth that John is concerned about that false teachers are teaching. It has to do with who Jesus is. There was an ancient heresy called docetism. Docetism believed that Jesus didn't really have a body. He was fully God. He came to earth, but he was kind of like a hologram. I mean, if you touched him, you would be touching something, but it, it wasn't really a body. He just appeared to have a body. But we confess the biblical truth that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he had a body, that he was flesh and blood just like you and me. This is so important because Jesus suffered the curse of the law in his body for you and I. If he didn't have a body, you and I are still in our sins. And this is the truth that John is writing to defend. Verse 7, deceivers have gone in the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So he's defending the truth. But look how he defends the truth. What does John tell the church to do in defense of this truth? Practice inhospitality. Be absolutely inhospitable to those who hold to this truth. 
Now, that should be striking to you. If you've followed at all what we've been talking about here at Pine Grove in the last couple of years, if you know anything about hospitality in Scripture, it is, and I don't think this is an overstatement, the paramount way that we express love for each other. I mean, hospitality is, if it's not the highest, it's the top two or three virtues in the Bible. Hospitality is huge in the Bible. It, it, it is the keystone of Christian love. John writes in the letter of 1 John that we know love because Christ laid down his life for us, right? The definition of love is self-sacrifice. And then he says this, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And then he answers the question, how? Right? So he's following the gospel. The gospel is Jesus laid down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for each other. And then he tells you how. Here's what he says. That, that if you have the world's goods, you should use them to feed and clothe and house those in need in the church. Hospitality. You can't be a Christian, John writes in 1 John, if you aren't willing to feed and clothe your brothers and sisters. He is saying you, cannot, you can't confess you love God and not love your brother and sister. How? By showing them hospitality. So hospitality is like the biggest deal in the Bible. And what is John here telling you not to do for false teachers? Refuse to feed them, refuse to clothe them, refuse to house them. Don't even greet them. And that's love. You see that? What John is telling the church to do in defending the truth by showing inhospitality is love. It's love. The church is a mother. Mothers love to provide for people. They love it. They love making a house a home. Like to decorate it. Your mothers have probably gotten out some different decorations for fall, or if she's really crazy, Christmas already. She's she creates a warmth. She invites people in. It's wonderful. And so the church is supposed to be this. It's supposed to be this hospitable place, this nurturing place, this warm place. And John is telling the mother here, don't be warm to these people. Don't nurture these people. Don't feed them if they're hungry. Don't clothe them if they're in tatters. Don't provide them shelter if it's October and raining. Don't even let your voice greet them. Does your definition of love include this kind of treatment of people who will not tell the truth? I think this is one of the reasons the church is very weak today because we will not practice this kind of thing. I think the church is very weak today because most of our preachers don't even sound like John anymore. They won't draw hard lines in love. Elders and pastors won't draw hard lines in love anymore. We won't do it. Why? We tell ourselves it's because we're loving. We tell ourselves it's because we're gracious. We tell ourselves it's because we want to win the culture. And we need to appear welcoming and warm and kind. 
And if we sound like this, the world won't like us and they won't come into us. Do you know why preachers and elders talk like that? Because they want people in here who will give more money. It's not because I love them. It's not because I love them. It's not. It's not. Let me end with this. Love, as you see in verse 12, always desires the more personal forms of contact. John says he has a lot to write to him. He's a preacher. <laughs> right? 30 minute sermon is not enough. I got a lot more to say, but I don't want to use any more paper and ink. I'd rather see you face to face. I'd rather see you face to face. Why? so that our joy may be complete. John began the letter in verse 4 saying he's rejoicing greatly from afar, but that joy isn't as full as it could be because he'd rather be in person with them. The father's away on business or the father's away at war. You have to be content with letters or, in our day, FaceTime, but it's not enough, is it? You want to be there. You want to be in person. You want to talk, you want to touch, you want to be next to each other. John would prefer to see them with his own eyes and for them to see with so that joy could be complete. Brothers and sisters, this is what we want from God, isn't it? We want to see God. We want to, we don't want to have to rely on a letter anymore. If you think of the Bible like a letter, We have to relate to him by faith. But we all know that we in some measure are discontent with this arrangement right now. We're very grateful for the Bible. It's not a dead letter. It's alive. It's awesome. But we groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies when we can actually be physically present with God. That's what we want. That's why the Bible concludes with a prayer. Come. Lord Jesus, come. Thank you for your word. If anyone adds to this or takes away from this world, his name will be removed from the book of life. But I I love your word, but I want you. I want physical presence, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. We have fellowship with God now through his word by his spirit. He delays, not out of lack of love, but wanting more to come to repentance and faith. But one day we will see him. One day we will eat with him. One day we will be face to face. But now, brothers and sisters, if you want the nearest, dearest, warmest relationship with God, it's through his word. It's the letter he has written for you. It's what he has given you now while he tarries, hoping that more will come to repentance and faith. He has given you his word for fellowship with him. But we look for him, don't we? Don't you want him? Isn't that our heart's cry? No more distance. No more faith. Face to face. And he's coming, isn't it? That's why we're going to celebrate this meal. Reminding ourselves that by faith we are actually seated with him at a table. And that one day this will be real. This will be real. The charge is this. 
Peter, John writes that he would hope to come and talk with you face to face. I want you to apply that to those who might be lonely here at Pine Grove. Many of you are in good relationships. You've gotten to know some people really well, and it's right to focus on them. But there are those in our congregation who haven't yet been invited into that kind of relationship. They come here on Sunday and they're lonely. They don't know people well. Um, and they, want, they would like that, and they have some things they need to do to make that happen, but I encourage you to uh, pay attention to them as well. Grace, mercy, and peace go with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, such that we would walk in truth and in love this coming week. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.